and welcome to Note Up. Note Up 68. We're going to talk about service manifests today. I'm joined today by Zeke Sekelianos. Hey, guys. Benjamin Coe. Hey, how's it going? Jacob Groundwater. Hello, hello. And Forrest Norval. Hi, Forrest. I'm Trevor. <laughs> so, uh, our sponsors are Anyet, CodeChip, and Lyft Security. So, let's, let's go and have everyone introduce themselves, give a little quick bio, and then we'll dive into what we mean by this thing, uh, Service Manifest. Zeke, why don't you kick off the intros? Sure. Um, so, I'm Zeke. I work at Heroku, and for the last uh, year and a half or so, my job has been to make Node um, customers happy on Heroku, to make it easy to deploy and manage Node apps. Awesome. Ben? Uh, hey, my name is Ben. I, I'm DevOps at NPM, and for, for years now I've had a keen interest in writing service-oriented architecture and just think it's still not done as well as it could be done, and I'm really interested in the topic space. Awesome. Jacob? Uh, hi, I'm Jacob. Uh, I'm an engineer at New Relic. I work on the Node.js tracing at New Relic, and I'm kind of interested in using NPM for more things like writing services. Hey, I'm Forrest Norville. I had to write down my title because it changed recently and it's kind of complicated. I am the very good developer officially in charge of the NPM CLI. Awesome. And I'm Dan Shaw. I run NodeSource, uh, enterprise Node.js company. So let me talk about real quick our, our first sponsor and then we'll dive into service manifests. First sponsor is Andyet. Andyet has created the first of its kind JavaScript training adventure. It's called JS for Teams Live, which teaches dev teams how to build highly advanced, highly maintainable apps together. It's based on the concepts and conventions introduced in human JavaScript by Henrik Dortek, which Jan Leonard called the best book you can buy right now to get a grip on front-end JavaScript. Henrik will be leading the, the training event. If you're familiar with Real-Time Conf, it's the same kind of crazy experience with a whole story by Mike Spiegel and original music by open source Ben Mitchell. All of this is distilled down into an event, an experience for just 30 people. Really incredible. So each, each class has a limited number of seats. If you want to join, use the discount code NOTEUP for $200 off. To find out more about JS for Teams and upcoming classes or to find out about human JavaScript, head to andyet.com and be sure to follow andyet on Twitter at andyet, A-N-D-Y-T. Thank you. All right, Ben, tell us what a service manifest is. Okay, so, so um, I just want to kind of start at a higher level and basically say that there's this class of packages that doesn't really make that much sense to publish on a package management system like NPM, which I would describe as services. And they're things like StatsD or Twitter bots or basically things where you have a few external dependencies like Redis or MySQL that you have to have set up environment variables for before they run properly. So the workflow that people tend to use for these services is they, they you know, go to the GitHub repo, they read the README file, they try running the project, get a crazy exception, and then kind of repeat until they stand up all the interdependencies. I would love to find a way to better describe these interdependencies so that you could actually more easily publish these services to a, a package management system and then just, uh, install these services just like you'd install a regular library. So this is, I guess, the problem that I'd like to see solved. I, I guess uh, at NodeConf, a conversation started between Zeke, Jacob, and myself just about how we thought to best solve this problem. 
uh, I was thinking maybe an environment stance in the package.json, uh, but Zeke brought up the topic of app.json, which I think would be cool to hear him talk about a bit. Yeah, so at Heroku, we've, uh, of course, the goal of Heroku uh, writ large is to, to make it easier to deploy web applications. So we, as Benjamin said, we noticed this pattern a lot where when someone shares uh, an open source web application, they, they write a readme and there's always this process of going through a bunch of configuration steps in a readme. And we wanted a way for developers to be able to codify that. So if someone wants to stand up an instance of, of an app, a web app or a service, um, they don't necessarily have to read any more than is necessary. So we started creating this format called app.json, which we intentionally named um, in a sort of generic way because we didn't want it to be specific to Heroku, but the goal is um, to be able to deploy apps easily without doing much configuration. So you can exam imagine an example like a, a Hubot app. You want, to, you want to set up your own Hubot app and depending on the configuration there, you may need to have a, a Redis backend for your Hubot. So the, 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 the end result here is that you can deploy an app without having to stand up a bunch of services. So. That's kind of where we're at with it now. And I think the important thing is we're not trying to make this kind of complex configuration language. We're trying to uh, ask for expectations in a machine-readable way. So instead of having those expectations in your README, there's kind of a simple, clearly defined way that you can specify these, uh, th these dependencies that you require in a better way than the README, I guess. I think we, as, as Node developers, all have... Uh, we're all excited about package.json as this format that whenever you open a node app or you come across a new node app or a new node module, you have this one sort of canonical reference point for finding out everything you need to know about what this app requires. So um, in the case of node apps, it's a logical extension to sort of try to describe service dependencies um, in that way as well. So Zeke, what, what, what sort of things are you encapsulating in an app JSON right now? So the things that are really um, uh, the moving parts that are actually have an influence on the, the build process are um, we have a, a property called env, as in environment, which is just a key value object for specifying environment variables required by the app. Um, and then we also have um, a property called add-ons, which if we were being more um, sort of platform agnostic, it might actually make sense to call it something more like services. But in this case, it's an array of uh, names of add-ons that, that can be provisioned by the sort of Heroku add-ons marketplace, like Redis or Mongo or various other databases or uh, mailing services, things like that. Uh, those are the two main ones, um, environment and add-ons or services. Um, then there's a lot of sort of... Um, vanity metadata on top of it uh, in app.json, which is basically cribbed from package.json. Things like name, description, repository, um, website, keywords, etc. Now, in terms of a Roku instance, you're, you're only going to have a discrete number of like environment configuration things. In a typical app, you're going to have 
the, the terms life cycle, I, 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 you know, you guys are kind of making me throw up a bit because we're, we're stepping into palm land and the maven land and you know, the entire life cycle management where, you know, you set up your staging variables, you set up your dev variables and, and no, I don't, all, I don't all think those are I don't think the proposal is that. It's not a uh, database.yaml or whatever it is in Rails where mm-hmm. you define your environments and then you set up values for each one. It's more okay. like my app requires something that says MySQL U- database URL. Like that environment variable needs to be set. So all you're doing is documenting that that environment variable needs to be set. You're not actually going to put the value of it because that'll have like a password and it's only specific to your app. It's more like, I should let someone know that these environment variables need to be set or my app will not start. Just in a way that's slightly better than the readme file. Okay, that's, that's actually really nice. You know, having a, yeah, a, a, a service contract kind of, right? Yeah, yeah I, think, I think there's room too to like even maybe have like a URI or a URL stanza where you can be like, you know, if you don't know what MySQL is, here's a, a page that tells you how to set it up. Just a way to provide good documentation about how to take this open source library and actually get it up and running on your own server. What about the concept of a schema? You know, this is a string, this is a number, this blah, blah, blah. I, I think that I, I like some of the ops parsing libraries. I think uh, I, I, looking at app.json, it was fairly close to like Optimist or, or uh, Yargs. Or one, mm-hmm. uh, so you had, you had, you know, description, key name, and you could specify an optional type like, you know, Boolean or string. I mean, for environment variables, that doesn't necessarily make sense because they're going to come in as strings. So it's kind of the responsibility of the consuming app to decide what those variables should be. But I don't know, the word schema frightens me a bit. (laughs) (laughs) I I actually played with this. uh, I I wasn't using package.json, but I was uh, documenting the foreign services that an app required at one of my like DevOpsy jobs. And what I ended up using was like the short GitHub name. Like, so this environment variable requires the app at this GitHub account. And that was the extent of me documenting, um, you know, what kind of service needed to be on the other end. I totally didn't follow that. What, what is this, this short GitHub name? Oh, right. So, you know, the like uh, groundwater slash and then some project name? Sure. So that... Uh, I would say like uh, maybe auth service under bar URL, and then I would just put the GitHub URL or GitHub short name of the app which provided that service. So it wasn't a specific location. It was just like, oh, if you don't know where to set where where this uh, you know what runs this service, this is the app which will provide that service for you. Okay, so we're, we're not going to have a readme, but we're going to have a link to a bunch of readmes? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, the other service would document itself as well. Well, I think the impetus for me is more like, how could you, like, because Heroku has the add-on stanza, which works really well because Heroku has, you know, specific names assigned to these specific different services that can be provisioned. If you could find a way to capture that in a non-proprietary way so that, you know, Heroku could take advantage of this stanza as well as, you know, Engine Yard as well as NPM and just, you know, so it could be used by a computer to say, oh, I've got these eight Redis providers. You could use one of these to provide this variable that needs to be set. 
or you know it could be as abstract as here's the Jacob's GitHub repo that also provides graphite or something. Mm -hmm. One thing that uh, that Benjamin mentioned offline, which I think is uh, really useful and important for this conversation, is that um, to come together on this, we don't necessarily need to settle on a specific file format. Some people love JSON, some love YAML, everybody's got their own sort of preferences and requirements. Um, but what would be nice is to settle on uh, a, a sort of general understanding of, um, or at least a, a common vocabulary for describing these things um, that could be uh, sort of embedded in different file formats in different ways. Um, I think Ben's example of uh, Semver is a, is a good one. So um, GitHub created this Semver.org site and essentially uh, outlined policies uh, in general for this version control sort of strategy um, without necessarily prescribing a specific way of implementing it. Um, and for that reason, I think it's been a very successful I don't know if it's a standard, but well, yeah, it's it's a convention, right? Like this is an opportunity for us to create a convention around this sort of stuff that can then be uh, machine enforced, I guess, in a number of different environments. And we really need to talk more about uh, the methodology than any specific set of you know shalls or shallots. This isn't really about an RFC. This is about coming up with a way for uh, different styles of orchestrating services to communicate with each other. And yeah. actually, I think I think it's as much about thinking about things. It's kind of like you know the whole twelve factor app philosophy in general. It's a it's a it's a way to structure this stuff more than anything else. Sorry, Jacob, didn't mean to interrupt you. That was Zeke talking. Oh, sorry, Zeke. I was, I was going to add, like, I think that, like, in the late 90s, like, I totally drank the, you know, the Wisdell soap Kool-Aid and was like, oh, we'll just be able to interoperate between all these web services and then the internet's going to be this huge, cool machine. And then really, I think when interoperation really started working was when people just got better conventions about how to write RESTful APIs and just had good documentation about their APIs and suddenly, like, the open sources exploded in the past five years. Uh, I, I was going to say, I, I think that it's a similar thing where there is kind of services are not being well enough described, but we don't want a heavy-handed standard going back to, you know, XML days and trying to prescribe a, a complex language for service descriptions. It's more about give something that's just enough information to add a bit more structure than there currently is. Yeah, that's really fascinating. About the time when everyone was kind of giving up on whistles and models, the reality of Web 3.0 and service-oriented architectures kind of just began to happen anyway. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think part of this is actually knowing what problem you're trying to solve. We're not trying to solve like some sort of computer, discoverable, readable, service interoperability inter layer this is kind of like, hey, let's document a few more of the things that our apps need to use. The thing that's most exciting about um, app.json for me thus far is um, the way we use it um, in our workflow for building apps internally. So um, if we have uh, an app like a Dashboard, for example, which is um, Heroku's web interface for managing your apps, um, you can, because of the app.json file, we can actually stand up um, ephemeral, short-lived instances of 
the dashboard app running uh, branches of the code, um, and we call them demonstrable pull requests. So when we create a pull request, we nice. can say, "Here's a URL to the actual uh, an actual running instance of the code that uh, um, I'm proposing that we merge." Um, there's actually a, 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 a an app called um, Fourchette, which is the French word for fork, which depends on Heroku's fork feature, which is kind of a, an older cousin of app.json, but it's definitely more proprietary. Um, and it automates the process of um, listening for GitHub uh, activity, monitoring branches, creating pull requests automatically, and then uh, setting up instances of that app, um, and then pulling them down when the pull requests get merged or deleted. So in terms of workflow, I think we have potential for this pull request thing that sort of revolutionized the way that we all work, um, if you could extend that to um, actually being able to run individual instances of apps, um, it's really exciting. It's definitely changed the way that we work internally. Awesome. Thanks. So I, I would love to get a, a, a quick sponsor in here. Can we transition into the, the survey of the world? Is, is there something you want to add in uh, before we move on to this next section? Uh, yeah, I was just quickly going to say, uh, I think Zeke really hit on this too, is as we're doing more service-oriented stuff, there's more applications that need to be run just to maybe edit <laughs> uh, one piece of a web app. So if I'm a developer and I, I want to go, oh, I want to change this thing. It's maybe slightly outside of the main area that I work in, so I don't have like all of the dependencies set up. It would be nice for me to be able to just pull in that one app and have the like maybe ephemeral versions of its service dependencies booted on my machine so it actually works and I can edit it, but I don't maybe have to go through this big, or, uh, like, this big setup of, of all of the things it may need to connect to and loading... You know, stub data into it. Uh, this is I've experienced this. I'm not sure if other people have. Oh, absolutely! And the impact of helping companies move from large monolithic systems to embracing the node way of small, you know, microservice-y things. This sort of definition is really helpful because people are used to defining a single thing and a single point of, of reality, a single point of reference. Uh, and the transition from you know that that thing being a single well defined or definable thing to a constellation of moving parts is, is actually quite challenging. All right, so uh, let me dive into our sponsor here. The next sponsor is CodeChip. CodeChip is continuous deployment made simple. You can set up a CodeChip integration in a few steps and automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. CodeChip has great support for lots of languages and lots of test frameworks. You can integrate with GitHub and Bitbucket. You can deploy to all of your cloud services, including Heroku, AWS, Nojitsu, and Google App Engine, or even your own servers. A standout in CodeChip's offering is their integration with Modulus. Modulus is super simple to set up and deploy. It literally takes just a few clicks. You can start up with a free plan. Setup only takes three minutes. You can go to codechip.io slash up to learn more. When you sign up, be sure to use the discount code NOTEUP, and this will give you 20% off any plan for three months. Check out the blog at blog.codeship.io and be sure to follow Codeship on Twitter at Codeship. All right, so 
who is going to kind of walk us through the, the problem space. As, go check out the show notes, and Zeke has a really great gist that's going to be posted on the NetUp show notes where he has gone through and, and basically researched all the, the manifest formats. Zeke, you want to walk us through some of the highlights of, of what you found? Yeah, so um, I started off by looking at platform-related stuff. So uh, the, the first sort of manifest format I looked at was... Uh, Fig, which is this um, product by a company, I guess a company called Orchard, which was, uh, as of maybe yesterday, acquired by uh, Docker. So there's a lot. Uh, oh, Docker's acquiring things? Crazy. Yeah, or I think you know, maybe, maybe Fig was created by one person and that one person now works at Docker. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> Get it. Uh, just saw it going by on Twitter. Um, anyway, so Fig is a... a a manifest format for describing uh, Docker images. So um, took some cues from there, um, but also looked at other things like um, uh, Node Jitsu, which is a, as everyone knows, a Node, pla- a Node hosting platform. They, for a long time, have had some special properties that they honor in package.json, and one of them is env. So env seemed like a natural, like a good name to choose. It's nice and short. Um, people familiar with Unix or web development in general are going to be—they're going to recognize this term. So basically, I was just going through all these uh, these different manifest formats, um, looking for trends, and ironically, trying not to reinvent the wheel, even though that's exactly what we were doing. And I, I, I found that in certain instances, uh, certain companies, such as Mozilla, have have tried to create open manifests. So Mozilla created this open web app manifest, which I think their intentions were good, but eventually they started to add things to the format that are very specific to building Mozilla platform applications. So um, I think the danger is that everybody that tries to do this, if they, if they, if their intention is to keep it as open as possible, it doesn't seem to usually happen. So it's, I guess I would say that it's really good that we're having this conversation because this is the, this, uh, gives us a better chance of actually accomplishing something that is uh, platform agnostic. Oh, I think this is a great time to explore this. You know, there, there, there's sufficient prior art and you know, critical mass of interest and tons of need. So absolutely. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head that, I mean, there's many benefits to, to a service-oriented architecture. Each app individually is easier for, to, for individuals to work on, and you can have many people working on many different components. But when it comes time to wire it all together, it's actually fairly conceptually difficult. Which I think that's the heart of the problem we're trying to solve. Yeah, another thing I'd like to mention that um, we talked about offline is how um, something that it's, has really appealed to me at Heroku since uh, before I started working here is this idea of enabling app developers to think of the things they're building uh, as products. So I build a lot of silly personal microservices that I would love to turn into products and be able to um, distribute in some kind of marketplace. Um, so add-ons, the Heroku add-ons um, marketplace is kind of alluding to that idea, but it's pretty specifically focused around infrastructure as a service right now. Um, I would love for a more general purpose marketplace to emerge um, it's still around web services, but not not specifically things like, you know, running Redis or Mongo, but um, 
just tiny, you know, interesting microservices. So that's kind of the underlying goal for me is to be able to empower people to turn their projects into products easily that can be distributed in, in a variety of app stores or marketplaces. I don't know what approaches people have used in the past, but one I settled in on writing service-oriented architecture was I, I liked the 12-factor app manifesto, and I liked the environment variable-driven configuration that it proposed. So I got to the point where I always just had a .env .default file in all my projects that would describe kind of all the environment variables that I wanted, and then different deployment environments would just have a concrete .env. I, I pa pasted a link to a project that grew out of that because me and a bunch of friends were using that approach. So we made something that could just interview based on a .m file. But this to me is kind of just an extension of that and saying that let's actually create a standard around this. So what's the ephemeral and concrete .m? I, I didn't quite follow yeah. that. Well, basically we'd, I'd, we'd, we'd say, okay, we're going to have a .m file. We're going to use, I was programming Rails at the time. So there there's, was this .m helper library that would just look for a .m file and when you're running in your local environment, it would source all of the environment variables. Okay. And then if you were eventually deploying to Heroku, you just have all the remote Heroku M uh, variables you're setting that describe your services. Mm -hmm. So I just got in the habit of each of my repos would have like a .env .default in them. And that just got it. a list of you know base environment variables without secrets. And then the .env is in your gitignore and is what actually has the privates for whatever environment you're deploying to. That approach worked pretty well for me, but it's just I don't know. It just doesn't quite doesn't quite scratch the itch, especially when you have you know five apps that are trying to talk together. It's also tricky because in many cases you're using those environment variables for secrets. So that's a big part of why we're here having this conversation is because we want to codify a way to represent. Hey, I have this secret that I need you to inject here, and it's tricky. <laughs> Is there any, it's kind of a devil's advocate question, is there any environment variable or any value, any key, actually, that we would never want to expose? So the values of those keys are often secret. Is there any sensible reason why the key would also be secret? I mean, if you're a, if you're a large corporation, I can see situations where you specifically don't want people to know you're using Redis so that mm -hmm. they're not trying to use it as an injection point into your infrastructure. But sure. in, in, in that case, I would say that it's, it's, the company could just opt to not release an open source package that describes that dependency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would and, map that question to saying, is there any node or NPM dependency that you would want secret? And it's like, you can't really run the app if you have a secret dependency. Well, well, the answer is yes, though. Right? Like, yeah, the, that, the answer to that question, Jacob, is absolutely yes. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wait, but we're talking about releasing your app. So if you want to release right. your app, sure. then, yeah. Well, Open source. You still, I, like, internally, if I have a private app, I still document my dependencies. I just don't release the app. Yeah, I think it falls under the same same as open source, where there's a chance you don't want people to know your open source dependencies, uh, and that's fine. But it doesn't change the fact that this would be a useful thing to have. Absolutely. Yeah. So sorry that that that, that space of the keys of things actually being you know, important, private or proprietary, uh, is, is something that I've been uh, dealing with a lot lately, and it's an interesting problem space. But does not in any way discount the value of you know defining this or, or doing it. You know what we're doing here. 
Okay, anything else that we want to say about the history of the world? No one's brought up, you know, a, a, a survey of the world in, in, uh, in Maven. Yeah, Ma Maven, Maven, Maven. Well, uh, come on, well, let's get real here. Like, Maven is primarily <laughs> a, a, a build tool that has some integration into the servicey world. If you're gonna, if you're gonna talk about service orchestration, uh, you have to kind of look broader than that, and you can look at things like Upstart and Systemd, mm -hmm. and you know, our our beloved System Five and it infrastructure. And what you discover very quickly is just this, you know, jagged wasteland of people bike shedding until eternity. Right. And there's some stuff to learn from there, maybe. But I think that's really all been dork, like distilled down to the stuff that that, that Zeke's already identified. Like, right. like the, the operationalizing this stuff has been this kind of weird weak point where it was largely left to people doing operational stuff until relatively recently. And it's only really with the rise of DevOps as a kind of mindset and and kind of the articulation of things like the 12-factor app in the first place that we really started thinking about uh, you know, creating a framework in which your code can figure out how to run it itself. I mean, we could talk about, you know, I don't know, Zookeeper and and a lot of those other kind of you know strong coordination tools, but that feels like that's different than, than what we've been getting at. Yeah, like, totally. Uh, like I I think this would be complementary to Zookeeper. Like if all your configuration is stored in you know a Zookeeper cluster, then uh, you're just going to have some sort of automation step that fills in the expected values with that configuration. Like right. I can see them working hand in hand. Great. So stop asking dumb questions, Dan. Jeez. What I would say, though, is I think that I feel very strongly that like the goal is not to move back towards kind of the heavy-handed service-oriented architecture that Java Land was pushing in the early 2000s, late 90s. Like well, that even, does not work. No one understood right. how to. No one understood SOAP. No one understood Wisdom. No one understood that stuff. Even even in the even in the uh, Rails world, there's been and actually in the the Python world, there's been a little bit of this kind of like like creeping cruft around this stuff where you start getting more and more composed like tools that handle a piece of this problem until you've got you know a gem file lock and you've got a proc file and you've got you all of the like endless configuration for your Rails app. Like the the idea here is to just find the like shake out the central core of this stuff and only focus on that and to keep it tied to the underlying idea rather than a concrete implementation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. Yeah, and and I think the the horror that I originally expressed uh, around the concept that was formulating there is you know, the potential for overreach and you know how something like the Palm XML really did everything, encapsulated all of the things, and therefore is unappealing. And uh, yeah, well, I mean, so let I mean, let's. I happen to be working on a tool where that kind of scope creep might actually become an issue. And, you know, one of the things I like about this approach is that it doesn't require NPM and the NPM maintainers to do anything, right? All we need to do is not not trample other people's cow path. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like Nojitsu kind of set the, the paradigm around this stuff by just sticking a couple little features into a package.json that didn't conflict with anything else and just using that themselves. 
and a lot of these other subsequent ideas. Like we can have an app.json file elsewhere. We can bundle this stuff into the package.json. But basically, this is things that other people are doing for themselves. And like I don't feel any need to come in there and like try to standardize or fence off all the stuff, which is very different than the approach where you know if you're going to get something into pom.xml, it had to be added to the schema. It had to be added to the kind of like the lexicon of what the tool was responsible for. And I, I, I see that being kind of an anti-pattern in the Node world. Right All right, let me uh, give a shout out to our final sponsor here, and then we'll talk about the app.json foundation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, final sponsor is Lyft Security. Building an application or service is already hard enough. Dealing with security then gets in the way. Security doesn't have to be painful, annoying, and frustrating, and you don't have to summit the security mountain alone. Adam Baldwin and the team at Lyft Security want to guide developers in building more secure applications. They already help secure tools you use every day, like GitHub and NPM. They founded and run the Node Security Project. Lyft can help you understand where your app and your team are in terms of security, then help identify and prioritize spots for improvement. They can offer recommendations and strategies for building apps that are going to be robust and secure in the future. Lyft has also created the first node security-focused training, an in-person, hands-on training that leads developers through common vulnerabilities, making sure you understand how to secure the framework of your choice. If you're interested in bringing the security-first mindset to your team's development process, contact the Lyft security team at liftsecurity.io and be sure to follow Lyft Security on Twitter uh, at Lyft Security. All right. So the next step, is, the next obvious step right, is to create a foundation to grow and foster the ecosystem around AppJSON. Um, yes, yes, that's very obvious. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I nominate Trevor to, to take that. Forrest doesn't have enough stuff to do. So, you know, seriously, more seriously. What what are the, the the tangible next steps? How can people who are interested in describing this this service manifest, you know, get up to speed, participate, and help contribute to this? So as of today, if you do a, a Google search for app.json, you'll get some pretty Heroku specific results. Um, we have a schema defined in our dev center that goes into detail about all the properties um, that exist today. Um, and we have a few blog posts on how to um, integrate with our new build API that honors app.json files. And we are in the process of building a, a web interface um, that's going to launch in the next few weeks um, for deploying app.json-based apps. So in, instead of having a, only a CLI-based flow for deploying apps, we're actually introducing a, a graphical interface for uh, which will be the hopefully the beginnings of a gallery or a marketplace of apps. Um, so that's out there today. Um, but we are, you know, the the draft is in the the schema is in beta. So we are still open to changes and happy to listen to feedback. So um, I'm zekaheroku.com and happy to to field any input that that people have on that. At Zeke on the Twitters. At Zeke on the Twitter, Z-E-K-E. 
So there's the, there's the spec. It, it seems like having a concrete implementation is essential for any any meaningful discussion, in my opinion, uh, mm-hmm. around this. But I, I know Ben in particular has been considering a an extension to package JSON as one possible solution for this. Is, is there a common forum that we can set up or an organization? Or... Yeah, I think it would, I think it would make complete sense to set up a, a GitHub org just to even just start a readme and start just having a conversation about some of our needs and just give it a name and uh, maybe we can plug it in, in post on this podcast. So there, I actually have a, a GitHub org already called app-json because you can't name, you can't have dots in uh, GitHub org names. Nice. So app-json has, it's a, of course all open source um, there's a node module in there called app.json that actually um, has the kind of a crazy node module. It's a command line tool, but it's also a module that can be used in the browser or um, on the server. So it's doing that um, isomorphic thing. So that's all out there in the wild. And the Heroku-specific pieces of it um, have been extracted out into their own modules, the idea being that if somebody wants to integrate it with another uh, platform, it's not going to be that hard to do. So there's a start there, but um, you know, I'm open to, to other things too. Okay. Is, is that a space in which you can have external contributors? Absolutely. Okay, great. So seems like conflating things with the app JSON project probably should you know, let that be independent and maybe have a, a separate org for, not org, uh, um, a separate repo for, for the discussion rather than yeah, now. that's what I'd like to see because I'd like to see app.json maybe adhere to something that's a little bit more abstracted and a little bit just kind of sitting out on its own. Mm-hmm. It's not tied to any specific company. Definitely. And then what's neat is then app.json is in a position to be, you know, the first implementer of this, of this idea. Yeah. So would that mean that we should start uh, a repo or something or a wiki, a repo with a wiki um, I think that on the app.json org? Or? or distinct. That's, that's fine, too. I'm not sure whatever. It's fairly easy for us to, to move a repo once it exists through, uh, you know, out the ecosystem. But I, I agree with Ben. It, it's probably you know better for App JSON to be a concrete implementation, and then you know service manifest or whatever it be you know something something distinct. I want to get a dig into something DL model Wizdle. <laughs> what about the service descriptions? That's a good boring name. <laughs> nice. Well, I, I mean, let's take a, a brief look at how this sort of uh, bottom up community specification effort has gone in the past like there's there's two two like there's two efforts that i can think of that have followed this model like just right off the top of my head and one of them we've already talked about which is semver which was more than just github i mean i was talking to isaac some of you may know isaac schluter he's my boss uh yesterday about his role in uh defining that standard and he was very much in the mix in there and there were a bunch of people who had different things that they were trying to do and really what they were trying to do was just codify a set of best practices around uh, what versioning could and should mean for for applications and libraries 
And Semver right now is is a fairly narrative spec as specs go. I mean, there are machine executable versions of it, but as we discovered recently, there is actually sometimes some drift between those machine uh, executable versions of it, which is to say Node Semver was doing some stuff that was different than what the spec actually said in Semver 2.0. And another example of this is uh, a one that I like a lot is Promises A+. Where a, a bunch of people were working on different promises implementations, they're like, okay, so what's the fundamental concept that we're trying to get here? What what is the simplest version of the contract that we can come up with? And then let's get all of this nailed down in kind of a, a semantic way without worrying too much about trying to sketch out what the actual API is going to look like. You know, there is some API description in Promises A+, but for the most part, it's just like, okay, we're talking about venables. And here's what it means for something to be a venable. And here's how you deal with errors. Here's how you deal with what's next. And now there are an arbitrary number of Promises implementations, including one in the uh, ES6 standard that can interoperate with each other, but otherwise are incredibly different in terms of what their focus is and what they're trying, what problems they're trying to solve. So let there be a bunch of concrete implementations of, of app.json and you know NDM and uh, Jacobs and package and like like allow people to start playing around with this stuff and then try to just you know back extract what the common features are. And turn that into the thing that these things are then kind of automatically and by definition compliant to because they're the ones that kind of pioneered all the different approaches for dealing with this stuff. Here, here. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm going to drop into the show notes a, a link to the, uh, the, the Promises A plus repo and organization. Lots of great stuff there. Yeah, and, and the, the point there is not so much that there's this repo, but that, that it, it actually succeeded the existence of Q and a couple other promises libraries. And it, it answered a need, which was like, oh, the promises in, just to choose an example, jQuery are totally busted. And then we have mm-hmm. to say, well, what does it mean for a promise to be busted? That means there has to be a way for it to be fixed in the first place. So it was a, a discussion that emerged from people trying to solve a problem and, and you know, really communicate with each other across that problem domain. I'm going to drop in a rep, like links to to semver.org and then NodeSember as well. Nice. And, and speaking, yeah, I'm, I'm speaking really, of... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, the, speaking of Semver, if you don't know about Semver.io, a great a useful service by uh, Heroku. And maybe Zeke. Did you, yeah. Uh, yeah. Zeke. I mean that. <laughs> Sorry. You sound so resigned, Zeke. <laughs> I mean that. It's useful. <laughs> yeah, dude. leader like, mm. likes it. <laughs> Yeah, so I just took some initiative there and created a service descriptions org so that we can at least start having a chat in. Do it. Great. So github.com slash service dash descriptions? Uh, service descriptions, one word. Okay. And I'm just adding everyone's GitHub right now. Awesome. Literally doing it live. Fantastic. All right, so be sure to come and check out if you want to participate in how service manifests are defined and interested in that, come participate. Especially if you have some concrete implementation that you've done inside of your, your org, then yeah, that's, that's a great way to participate in that. Cool. Fantastic. Anyone have any closing thoughts? If not, I'm going to send us into the plugs. My first podcast. Good times. Right. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs> Come back. 
I'll have to uh, update folks once the uh, service description initiative kind of takes off and we have something uh, a little bit more to share. It'd be great to, to come back and uh, revisit this. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks, everybody. Let's go through and do our plugs. Zeke, you don't have anything written down. Do you have anything you'd like to plug? What, what do you mean? <laughs> Plug what? <laughs> Plugs is a note up concept where you get to be selfish and sell something, pitch something, tell people about things that you care about. Um, I would like to send a shout out to my 15 month old son, Cosmos. <laughs> Heard. <laughs> Love it. That's it. <laughs> nice. Does he listen to a lot of note ups. <laughs> this will probably be his first parenting tip. Kids actually don't appreciate having to listen to you know the, your 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 talks. <laughs> is this like a lesson learned? This is a totally lesson learned. I, I've tried yeah. this before. Like, oh, let's check this out. Let's listen to Daddy talk. No, no, <laughs> not cool. Not cool. Ben, I've I recently started work at this company called NPM. Check them out. Uh, you can download packages. It's really cool. And also. <laughs> I have a package on there called NDM where I've been noodling around with a lot of this service stuff and it's really rough and probably going to change a lot as we have more discussion, but uh, check out that repo. NDM. Yeah. Uh, right, right. Yeah, I've mistyped yeah. that many times. But yeah, it's probably the worst named thing ever. I'm realizing. <laughs> <laughs> it stands for NPM Dog Manager. <laughs> Doge Manager. <laughs> sure. Uh, Actually, I thought of something. Something to plug. Oh, please. Okay, so uh, I created this browser extension uh, last year at NodeConf called NPM Hub, npm-hub. And what it does is um, when you're browsing a GitHub repository, with a, or if you're on a page that has a, a file listing and a package.json is present in that file listing, uh, the extension will actually uh, hit the npm.js registry to fetch metadata about each of those packages and then render a list of package names and descriptions underneath the readme. So it's a really good way to discover new node modules. And for some wow, reason, it's one of my projects plug. that has not taken off. Nobody seems to really love it, but I use it every day. So give it a try. I'm installing it right now. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, I was not aware of that one. Nice. Goldwater. Uh, yeah, anyone who's talked to me recently has heard me talk a lot about runtime JS, which is this crazy idea of running a V8 kernel, basically building a kernel in V8. So if you haven't checked that out, I put the link to the repo on there. But there's also some other cool stuff that came out of that, which is this runtime is not the first attempt. And there's another guy, Unix Pickle, and he's, I put a link to his awesome. repo. <laughs> yes. Uh, and he's he's also trying to build a uh, a kernel for running either. Well, he's actually kind of into Dart, but Dart or V8 in in the kernel. And he's in high school, so it made me feel bad. Awesome, but they're both pretty cool. Check them out. All right, so my plug is NodeSource, NodeSource.com, at NodeSource on the Twitters. NodeSource provides enterprise-grade software products, education services, and consulting services that help empower companies be effective and productive with Node.js. We help Fortune 500 companies go from prototype to production. Um, thank you. All right, so real quick. Right hey, now, man, where's my plug? You didn't plug first? I didn't get a chance. You I'm sorry. right over me. I'm sorry. Trevor. So, I work for a, a cool little company in Oakland, right next to City Hall, called NPM, where nice people matter. 
And I need another nice person who is preferably a very good developer to come help me deal with the overwhelming onslaught of things that need to happen to the NPM CLI. It is by far the awesomest job I've ever had. And I would really, really like somebody cool to come help me out with it. Please. Awesome. And you get to work in scenic Oakland. Yeah. And it really is scenic. I really like Oakland. I like it a lot more. I like it a lot more than I thought I was going to. It's a nice place to work. Yeah, I was just at the Oakland JS last night for first time ever, and I liked it. It's good. Definitely, yeah. I want to double plug for us. Do that. Go work on the CLI and uh, great team there at NPM. Um, no shortage of interesting problems to solve. All right, so coming up in your events of nodes, NodeConf EU, September 7th through 11th, nodeconf.eu. Go check it out. Fantastic conference in Waterford Island by a Mr. Kian O'Maiden. CampJS 4 is coming at the end of October. Head to campjs.com. This is going to be in Australia. Be sure to get your node down on and join the next iteration of CampJS. Fantastic event put on by Tim Oxley. November is coming up in November in Nashville, Tennessee, November 15th through 16th, November.org. I will be there, so I hope I'll see you there. And then JSConf and CSSConf Asia are coming in November 19th through the 22nd, so CSSConf, as you've seen in the other JSConf family of conferences, will be the day before JSConf Asia, uh, November 19th. So check that out. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, be sure to leave a review in iTunes and follow NodeUp on Twitter at NodeUp. There are some sponsorship slots coming up soon. So reach out to NodeUp at Gmail if you're interested in uh, sponsoring NodeUp. It's great to have uh, and continue noting up. So appreciate your sponsorship. So thank you, everybody, and talk to you soon on the NodeUps. Say bye. 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 <laughs> bye. Thank you. You don't want it to end. <laughs> <laughs>